Well, this is the last week of our five-week series on community, building healthy community. And uh, if you missed any of the other weeks, or perhaps even all of them, this is a fine week to be here. We're glad that you're here. So if we look at the last weeks, the very first week we got together, we talked about the foundation or the basis for community, and that is the gospel. And you can fill that in on your sheet if you'd like. Week two, we talked about spiritual gifts, the importance of spiritual gifts in building a healthy community. Week three, we talked about love, love that holds everything together, protects community, enhances, nurtures, benefits community. Love is an essential ingredient in community. And then last week, we talked about discipline, that love expels evil. And what that means is that love needs to go to war when evil shows up. And that means that the church, if it's going to be a healthy community, has to have a role for correction and discipline. Because evil doesn't just stay outside of the church walls. It doesn't stay outside of our lives. It likes to make its way right into the center of our church and the center of our lives. So love that is healthy is going to be contending with or fighting with evil. And that means that we have to have a role for discipline. So I will not have to remind you that I am not an artist um, when it comes to my drawings. You know that. But I thought as I put together this series that we're talking about building the church. And though I've gone to great pains to exhort all of us that the church is more than this building, the church is more than just coming on Sunday morning, I... uh, for inexplicable reasons reverted to the um, picture of a church (laughs) to illustrate our four weeks together thus far. So if we think about the foundation of the church or our healthy community as the gospel, that thing that everything else gets built on, that was our week one. And our week two is spiritual gifts. That really puts the framework around community life, that there's a spirit that's alive and active and working and he is empowering people who show up to help provide structure, teaching, insight, wisdom, care, mercy, service, hospitality, all of those things that create a structure for this community, the church. And then we have the roof of our church, which week three we talked about love. So when you have that roof, it protects you from the elements, it keeps you safe, um, it nurtures safety in that community, essential Love needs to be there. Uh, You're exposed to the elements if you don't have a roof on your church, and love provides that kind of covering over this community. And then last week, we talked about... um, These are my crude little drawings. Uh, We talked about discipline. What is discipline? Essentially, it is the ability to keep bad things out and let good things in. That's a very simplified version of our message last week. That's doors, that's windows. So that allows light and life. It allows ingoing, outgoing. It allows movement in the church. Discipline does. And of course, the doors need to be open. The windows need to be open in this community. That being said, we do have the needed uh, experience of closing those at times to certain elements. And Paul talked about that last week, and we spent time talking about that. So we've got a foundation, we've got walls, we've got a roof, 
we've got doors and windows, and then today we'll be talking about that crown of community, and that is freedom. We're going to talk today about freedom. Now, when I say freedom, what I'm meaning, for some of you, you may have heard this talked about as Christian liberty or freedom in Christ. Those are all synonymous terms for us today. So we're talking about freedom, we're talking about liberty, we're talking about the idea of freedom in Christ. That comes out of Corinthians, and Paul builds a lot of what he says to the church on the idea of freedom. In fact, what he writes to most of the churches has to do with freedom in Christ. And the very first blank today is going to be the word price, the price of freedom. I'm really proud of myself today. If I was in my homiletics class at Moody, I'd probably get an A+. I have four points today, and they all start with P. It's amazing. It's a preaching miracle. It's true. <laughs> and our first word is price, the price of freedom. What is the price of freedom? It is the cross. It is the cross, and it is the gospel. So it's the foundation of church, it's the foundation of community, and it's the foundation of freedom, freedom in Christ. So we are saved by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reads this way. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Pretty clear that God saved you from the penalty of your sin, which is eternal separation from him. He saved you by his grace, which means he's got good things that you're not entitled to, and he allowed you to experience them when? When you believed. And why can't you take credit for the fact that God saved you by his grace? Because it was a gift. It was a gift from who? From God. A gift is not something, especially here in Ephesians, that you've earned or you've merited. So it's a little bit like showing up at grandma's on Christmas and getting presents. You can come, if you have a benevolent grandma like I did, to expect gifts, but that doesn't mean that you're entitled to them or that you have earned them. And in a much bigger picture, God is saving us, but not because of the good things that we've done. Paul spells it out. Salvation, being rescued from the penalty of your sin, is not a reward for the good things that you have done, so that there's no one on the planet who can stand up and say, I helped you, Jesus, to save me. There's no one on the planet at any time who can say that when they stand before God. Yes, Jesus, you did your part, and I did my part. There's no one who can say that, because nobody is saved because of that. You are only saved because of the gift of God saving you from the penalty of your sin. The price of freedom is the cross. We are saved by faith. Paul goes on in Romans to say the same thing. Verse 9 of chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of your sin. And what is it that saves you from the penalty of your sin? Belief. Belief in the promises of God, 
the belief that God saves sinners who trust in Christ. He says the same thing in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, there was no need for Christ to die. So Paul, again and again, and here again in Galatians, is trying to drive home the point to all of Christendom that the grace of God becomes meaningless when we add human effort to the saving work of Jesus Christ. So it is not the cross plus my effort that ends up with me being pleasing to God. It is the cross plus nothing that ends up making me pleasing to God. All I can do is trust that that's enough, to believe that that was done for me. So Galatians 2.21, Paul says, the grace of God becomes cheap. It means less when we try to add good works or being moral or keeping rules. When we try to add that to the grace of God, we end up making the grace of God cheaper. In fact, it, it means less. And Paul said it even becomes meaningless. The cross of Christ becomes meaningless. So those are really strong words that Paul uses to try to emphasize that you have been won and your freedom has been won. In that same book of Galatians, Paul says in chapter 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Our Christian freedom or our Christian liberty is built on the foundation of security in Christ. That we are secure not because of our goodness, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. That and that alone is the only thing that we can have confidence in to recommend us to God when we stand before him. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's all we can have confidence in. And because we can have confidence in that, we are free from the penalty of sin forever. So when we sin, as believers, we are not condemned to an eternal separation from God. Why? Because of the cross. So you and I sin as believers, as people who have placed our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That has happened. You are now justified and made right with Christ. You are sanctified. You are holy. You are perfect, and yet you sin. So the fact that you have a position that's been established because of the finished work of Christ and your practice or your reality of not quite living out your position in Christ, that's mitigated because of the sin in your life, the sin nature that Paul says in Galatians always fights against the Spirit of God. That war is happening. But regardless of the skirmishes and the battles, you don't have to fear that you're going to be bad enough to end up losing your position in Christ. Why? Because you didn't secure your position in Christ by being good. Your position in Christ was secured because of the finished work of Christ, not because you did a good job of stopping bad things and starting good things. That's not what secures your position in Christ. It's the work of Christ alone. That's why you're free. That's why you have Christian freedom. That's why Paul talks about the reality of Christian liberty. 
Because once you're positioned in Christ, you are, from a spiritual standpoint, bulletproof. There is nothing that can wreck your standing with Jesus Christ. You are positionally secure forever. Because Christ fulfilled the law for us, we are free from the obligations of the law. The law means specifically the Mosaic law and all of the sacramental, sanctimonious types of obligations under the law, if you are a Jewish person, but it also refers to any moral behavior that you think this should happen, that shouldn't happen. Anytime you decide, yep, this needs to happen and that needs to stop happening in my life, you've created a law. Even if it's outside of the law of God in the Old Testament, you've created a law for yourself. That being said, Christ fulfills the law. So all the obligations, the stuff you had to do and didn't have to do and needed to do and avoid, all of those things were fulfilled in Christ. He did it all. Our obedience to Christ, then, is not motivated by fear of being cast out of the family of God. We do not obey Christ. We do not obey God because we are afraid that we will lose our standing or lose our salvation. That's not what motivates our obedience. Our obedience is motivated out of love, out of devotion for that act of inexplicable love. So the price of freedom is the cross. The practice of freedom is where we'll go next. The practice of freedom. Let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to look there. If you have it on your phone or your iPad, some other device, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And I'll do this reading here from chapter 8. So we're going to start in verse 1. I'll also have it on the screen. Now, regarding your question, Paul writes to these Christians in Corinth, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords, but we know that there is only one god the Father who created everything, and we live for him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. So Paul here is laying out how you can practice in one very specific circumstance 
the liberty or the freedom that you have in Christ because of your positional standing in him. Because there's nothing you can do or not do that's going to take you out of the family of God, you have the freedom to eat, in this case, meat that's sacrificed to idols. So in the Roman Empire, as many of you know, if you were visiting any town of substance, you'd find a temple, likely many temples. Certainly in Corinth, there were more than one. But when you'd go to the temple, you would find that there were regular, even daily sacrifices that people would bring, cows and bulls in particular. And when you went to the temple to offer a sacrifice to whatever god it was that you were sacrificing to, to gain favor for your business deal, to gain favor for the harvest, to gain favor for the fertility of your wife, to gain fertility, uh, to gain favor rather from the god for whatever journey you had to take across the ancient world for safety, all those kinds of things would have been a reason to bring a sacrifice to the temple. You bring a sacrifice to the temple, the priests kill that animal, and you're not bringing a scrawny animal because you want to show the gods that you're sincere, so you would bring something that was costly, especially if whatever is the favor that you wanted from that god was meaningful to you, then you'd represent how meaningful that was by the sacrifice that you brought. So there's lots of livestock that are very well fed that are being killed on a daily basis all across the Roman Empire. And what did they do with these carcasses once the sacrificial rites were completed? Well, they would cut them up, butcher them, and then they would sell them in their cafes at the temple. They could give them to the priests, and sometimes they did, but they made more money if the people of Corinth, in this particular instance, would pay money for a Bale burger or an Athena wrap or a Mars muffin or whatever, you know, I mean, whatever it was, you'd have this menu of items, in particular meat, that was sacrificed to these deities, these gods, and you could pay money and get a really good cut of steak. You could even grab a T-bone and head home and fry it up on the grill. So there were, there were a lot of different ways in which you could pay money to enjoy the leftovers of the sacrifice in Corinth. And Paul says, that's totally okay. Believers, you can do that. Yes, there's all this spiritual residue from the cultic services that were performed, but you and I know, Paul says, we all have knowledge, we know that's not real. That's empty. That's pretend. There aren't other gods, and God, our God is fighting these other gods. There aren't any other gods. It's all empty. So, yeah, it's been sacrificed to emptiness. You can eat it. That's fine. So there aren't laws like there were for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And why is that true? Again, it's because of your positional standing in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this as well in chapter 10, verses 25, 26, and 27. So if we jump in at verse 25, he says, So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience, for, quote, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to, eat 
whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. So there you have Paul giving some directions. How do you live in this freedom in this area, which is kind of thorny, and I can understand, Paul says, why it's confusing, but you want the right answer? Do you want the answer key? The real answer is there's nothing wrong with it. Go ahead. Have the bail burger. Have the Athena wrap. It's fine. You can do that. So a generation ago, we could contemporize Paul's encouragement to us by saying, go ahead and play cards and wear denim and drink beer and smoke and even dance. (laughs) We could say those things because it would have the same sting to a generation ago as it was to the Corinthians who were accustomed to thinking of bail burgers as off limits. Like that's what pagans do and then Christians stay away from bail burgers. A generation ago we might say, well Christians stay away from dances and cards and that's what non-believers do. So Paul is trying to help believers understand playing cards, bail burgers, the Lord, everything that is in the, the uh, sphere of what you could do or couldn't do, all of that belongs to the Lord. So therefore, our standing in Christ allows us freedom to choose. And when we choose, we're not choosing our eternal damnation by what we choose to do or not do. We don't make ourselves clean or unclean because our cleanliness has been established by Jesus Christ. So we have the price of freedom the practice of freedom. Now we have the problem of freedom. And many of you are fidgeting in your seats because you've already thought about some of the problems that freedom that I'm describing might create. Let's look at verse, verses 23 and 24 of chapter 10. We were just there. Verses 23 and 24. Paul says, You say, I'm allowed to do anything. And he doesn't argue with that premise. But what he does say is, not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So why is Paul allowing the Corinthians room to make these statements? These statements come from an earlier letter that we don't have, where the Corinthians are interacting with Paul about some of the stuff that's going on in their church. And one of the things they asserted to Paul is, why can't we allow X, Y, and Z? Because you're the one who taught us that we're free and we can do anything we want. And Paul says, yes, I did teach that. And yes, you're right. You can do anything. You're allowed to do anything. Nothing is going to snatch you out of the hand of God. You can't lose your standing in the family of God. However, even though that is true, yes, you are allowed to do anything and not end up in hell. Not everything is good for you. Yes, every choice is open to you, but not every choice leads to goodness in your life. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I'm allowed to do anything, Paul says, but not everything you choose to do is going to benefit you or benefit, in Paul's thought, Benefit this larger group of people that you say you love, this body of believers, these brothers and sisters. Yes, you can do everything, but not everything is profitable for community. And then here he talks about 
And we, let's just touch on verses 9 through 13 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, starting in verse 9. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their own conscience by eating food that's been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. Now, that's a little bit of a scary word. Let me tell you that that word destroyed is the very same word that's used three different times in Luke 15. Luke 15, is the, there are three parables in Luke 15. The first one's about a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then famously, a lost son, the, the story of the prodigal. Being lost is the same word that's used here, destroyed, that Luke 15 talks about with a lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Destroyed. Verse 12, And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you're sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. So in other Older translations, the King James, others like it, even the New American Standard, this idea is talked about as the weaker brother. The weaker brother. What is a weaker brother, a weaker brother or sister in Christ? It's someone who either, one, has not had teaching about freedom in Christ. They do not know that their position in Christ is secure. For a person who hasn't had that teaching, they might mistakenly believe that they're the thing that keeps themselves from the dangers of hell. They might mistakenly believe that they have something to do with their position in Christ. That would be a mistake, but there are believers who haven't had this teaching that you're receiving this morning, and they don't understand that they're secure in Christ because of his finished work. So when you encounter a believer who thinks that they're in the driver's seat with their eternal destiny based on their choice making, that creates a very scary place for that person to live. And they're having to be very vigilant about every choice they're making because they're never sure which one's going to tip the balance in the wrong direction and slide them right out of the kingdom of God. That kind of fear-based and, from a biblical standpoint, ignorant, meaning you don't know the teaching of position and freedom in Christ, that can create a weaker brother syndrome. That's one. The other is if you grew up, like Paul says, in, a, in an environment where you're used to thinking of things a certain way. So I would say, for instance, like, uh, I mean, you would call that a prohibitive conscience. Like you grew up in a, a family culture or a regional culture or a, a religious culture that had certain prohibitions so that for instance, if you were to take a drink of alcohol, you might sort of theoretically be able to acknowledge, I know alcohol itself will not defile me, but I feel so guilty if I were to drink a beer or have a glass of wine. That just feels wrong to me, even though I know it's not wrong, right? That's a prohibitive conscience, and that's residue or leftover from just the culture you grew up in. Those are two situations where that weaker brother concept 
becomes relevant. Where is the weaker brother not relevant? Who is not the weaker brother? I would say the weaker brother is not someone who wants to control the spirituality and choices of other people. (laughs) That's not a weaker brother. So a weaker brother is someone who has a prohibitive conscience or they haven't had teaching about freedom and position in Christ. A weaker brother is not someone who comes in like a busybody telling you how you're supposed to manage your spiritual life because you're not following the rules the right way. And if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't do it either. That's a spiritual bully. That's not a weaker brother. That's someone throwing their weight around, trying to intimidate other people, using their conscience as the highest guide. That's a spiritual bully. What do you do with spiritual bullies? (laughs) Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, he ran into some. If you didn't hear my series on Galatians, I would encourage you to listen to it. I just love how Paul handles spiritual bullies. He says in Galatians chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5, And they supported me, who? The leaders of all of Christendom in the Antioch church. They supported me, Paul says, and they didn't even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Why? Because circumcision was sort of like the basic, got to do this in order to get into the kingdom of God. So thought the spiritual bullies. But not even the leaders of the entire church thought that was a good idea, having Titus get circumcised, even though he was a Gentile. And verse 4, he continues, Even that question came up only because of some so-called Christians, they are false ones, really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Again, we have this concept of freedom, freedom and position in Christ. They have to be seen as inextricably connected. They're linked. You can't get freedom in Christ without your position in Christ. And because Paul knows that, everywhere he goes, he's teaching brand new believers about the freedom they have in Christ because of the position that they have in Jesus Christ. They tried to take away our freedom in Christ. They wanted to enslave us to what? To rules. All kinds of religious obligations and rules and things you should do and shouldn't do and you should touch this but don't touch that. The hem should be here and not here. All of those things. The hair should be here and not here. The beard should be trimmed this way but not that way. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for even a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So for Paul, the truth of the gospel message and freedom in Christ, those things in his brain can't be separated without doing violence to the gospel message, that your freedom, your position in Christ, that it has been won by the finished work of Jesus Christ and secured by faith alone and no works, that and freedom in Christ are just stuck together. Your position in Christ means you are free. You're free from condemnation. Anything is permissible for you to do. And that's why the Corinthians said, hey, Paul, what about this trump card that we get to do anything? Don't we get to do anything? And Paul says, yes, you can do anything, but not everything is good for you. What do you do with a weaker brother who's masquerading as a weaker brother when really he's a spiritual bully? You stand up to him. You teach him about freedom in Christ. And you wrestle with him (laughs) gently, 
but insistently. Paul didn't yield even for a minute. He didn't give them any ground at all. He didn't concede any ground. Not for a minute, Paul says. That's not what he does with spiritual bullies who are using their consciences to create the boundary for everybody else. Paul says that's not the stuff we give in to, not in the church. Stand up to spiritual bullies. And lastly, the purpose, the purpose of our freedom. What is the purpose of our freedom? 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells us, starting in verse 19. Paul says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I'm not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. What was the purpose of freedom for Paul? Why was he so excited about the freedom that he had in Christ? If you know at all about what was happening for the Corinthians, they were excited about their freedom in Christ for all the wrong reasons. Paul says, I'm committed to my freedom in Christ because it helps me reach unreached people. My freedom in Christ helps me reach unreached people. That's why Paul was so excited about the freedom that he has in Christ. And I would encourage all of us here this morning, that's the reason if you have a prohibitive conscience or you consider yourself a weaker brother, that would be the reason why you'd want to push into that. Because your rules can isolate you from people who are dying and separated from God. The message of life that you have the way in which God has changed your heart, your rules can keep you separated from those people. And Paul said, praise the Lord, he's obliterated all those rules so you can walk right into wherever you're not supposed to be with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you have to dress up, Paul says, like a Jew and keep all of those rules, you do it. Why? To reach them. And if you're with Gentiles and it's all hanging out and it's whatever, then I'm there. Why? To rescue them from their spiritual blindness, to help them understand that there's life in Jesus Christ. Paul says, it's not all holds barred. Like, I'm not going to a swingers club. I, there's, there's still the law of Christ. There's still the law of God. I'm still constrained. I'm not going to sin against Christ. But I don't have to follow rules in order to, Stay away from this rule and that rule. This is clean, that's unclean. So the reason why a weaker brother would want to grow, the reason why someone with a prohibitive conscience would want to grow, is if your heart is moved towards reaching people who are lost. 
And that's a wonderful place to invite the Lord to be working on your heart, all of our hearts. Even if you here this morning are like, oh yeah, Pat, I know all about Christian liberty. I wrote the book on it, I, you know, whatever. Right, great. Well, and then I would hope you would be using your Christian liberty to rescue people who are outside of your normal sphere. Who are you using your freedom to reach? That would be a challenge for me. That would be a challenge for all of us. But think about where you draw the line. Do you draw the line about what you do and don't do? Do you draw that line for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of convenience? Do you draw that line for the sake of conviction or the sake of complacency? Do you draw that line about what you will do and won't do for Christ or for carnality? Because it just feels good. The Spirit can guide your thinking. It can guide your heart as you're mulling over, why do I draw the lines in my life that I do? And how could I push myself to be more engaged with people who are lost and don't know Jesus? What names are you praying for? Some of you wrote names on our bridge. Some of you didn't. I would love for all of you to have at least one name that you could write on your bulletin of a person who's unreached with the gospel. Someone who your heart is moved towards, if nothing else, to simply pray for them and lift them up and invite the Lord. Lord, could you work in their heart? Could you open their eyes? Could you open their spirits?